Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Bona Allen. Mr. Allen is a seasoned executive that has provided executive leadership across multiple industries and diverse business environments. He is an accomplished financial professional with an entrepreneurial spirit, drawing upon his many years of experience to provide financial and operational leadership at the highest levels. Mr. Allen serves as the Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer for Kojima Building and Design Incorporated and subsidiaries, otherwise known as KBD Group a subsidiary of the U.S. operations of Kojima Corporation, one of the largest international design and construction companies globally. Kojima Corporation is based in Tokyo, Japan, and has operations in 21 countries worldwide. KBD Group is a fully integrated design-build firm providing turnkey architectural, engineering, and construction solutions to its many U.S. and international clients. Over the last five years, KBD Group has designed and constructed over $1.5 billion of projects in the United States. This includes numerous 100 million plus major manufacturing projects that have provided thousands of jobs. In addition, KBD Group has completed over 200 industrial warehouse projects in the last five years, totaling over 45 million square feet of space. Mr. Allen is also active in the community, serving as a co-chair of the Atlanta chapter of the CFO Leadership Council. As the chair of the Alcohol License Review Board for the City of Dunwoody, on the board of directors for Three Keys, a nonprofit focused on ending chronic homelessness, as well as other industry and community roles. Bona, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Megan. Yeah, today we're going to be discussing supply chain disruptions and how to better manage them. Whether personally or professionally, we've all felt the pain associated with a supply chain that isn't functioning as it should be these last two years. But it's an issue that seems to be here for the foreseeable future. There are ways to better manage these challenges, and Bona, I'm looking forward to your advice. But first, let's start with a little bit about you. First, tell us about your career journey to date and how it is that you got to where you are right now. Well, sure. Yeah, thank you for asking that. So my career journey has started in accounting and business administration in college. And then unlike a lot of folks that start out in accounting, I did not go straight to public accounting. I went straight into real estate development and construction. So I started my career and was with this initial group for five or six years, I guess. And then with the, one of the downturns that, is, that seems to plague real estate development and construction, I was laid off. And then found myself in another group that was in Birmingham, Alabama, and then came over to back to Atlanta. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, and, and joined a group that is Dutch owned. It was Dutch owned and had real estate holdings across the country and across the world. But we were focused in the U.S. here. The U.S. headquarters was here in Atlanta. And so we had construction companies and development projects all over the U.S. And then that led into the savings and loan problem in real estate in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and at that point, I helped work out a big out-of-court bankruptcy, basically. At the time, there were a lot of real estate companies going under and declaring bankruptcy, but we were able to work around that by assigning all of our assets, either in essence to a good bank or a bad bank, based on whether or not those properties were performing. So the properties that were performing went into a trust 
and we gradually worked our way out of those and generated cash to pay for deficiencies associated with properties that were not performing. So we paid everybody off and I sort of worked my way out of a job. And at that point, I went back and got my CPA. So I sat for the CPA exam 13 or so years after graduating from college. I did not pass the first time. It took me a couple of tries, but finally got my CPA license. And the state of Alabama has a two-tier licensing program so that you can get the license and not practice publicly because you haven't practiced publicly in the public realm. So I am deemed a CPA, but I just don't hang my shield out and practice public accounting, which I really didn't want to do anyway. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of my career. And since then, I've been the, let's see, this chief financial officer for a public company. It was publicly traded and we were buying and investing in hotel properties. And then later I got another stint in a privately owned hotel company and we developed our own hotel brand. And so I've had a couple of stints in the hospitality business. And then I've been with groups that have big master plan developments, both on the industrial side, commercial side, and the residential side. So I've got experience in single family, multifamily development, multifamily ownership and management, both in the market rate and affordable housing for lower income type folks. And then that brings me to KBD, Kajman Building and Design Group. So I've been here almost nine years now. So Kajma is based in, the parent company is based in Tokyo. It was formed in 1840 in Tokyo and now has worldwide operations focused primarily on architectural and engineering services and construction. In the U.S. here, that's what we focus on is architectural engineering. We've got architects and engineers on staff. And then so we can design and build big manufacturing facilities, advanced manufacturing facilities, warehouse distribution facilities around the U.S. And then in the Northeast, we've got an operation outside of, of New York City. We do a lot of work in the city there and surrounding areas. So, so KBD is focused on manufacturing facilities. Yeah, industrial. That's right. Manufacturing and warehouse distribution. Yes. Okay. So as you look back on your career, are there any particular stories that stand out in your mind as turning points? Yes, actually, the concept of networking. <laughs> it's so, so it's important. Not, yeah, it is. And it's really difficult for accounting type folks, right? Yep. And, and, <laughs> True. And so Megan, I see in, in your profile, you talk about being a people person. And I think that's where I am as well. I mean, that's, I don't think I started out that way. I, I'm naturally not a people person or wasn't years and years ago. I enjoy just keeping my head down and doing accounting work. And But then I found that, you know, especially through one or two cycles, I really need to get out there and meet people. And that's a lot more fun than strict accounting work anyway. So I think that's a big turning point for me is the concept of networking. At this point, it's really trying to help other people. There are other folks out there in the job market or other, whether they're trying to build a business or trying to find a, another opportunity. A few minutes of my time can make a big difference to somebody else. So I think that's for me, it's a turning point is the concept of networking to help folks. Secondly, is my public company experience. I think that helped a lot and give me a different perspective or gave me a different perspective, especially in corporate governance and how as leaders and executives in a company, how we need to communicate to our shareholders and make sure that they have all the information they need. They may not read it and it may be a little boring, which is another task and coming upon us is to Make all, boil all these numbers down into something that tells a real compelling story. 
And so that was helpful in the public company experience. And then third, I think, is the, the hospitality experience. I mean, when you build a hotel and you're, you're running a hotel, you really have guests there and, and it's a 24-hour operation, which is inherent and it, it makes sense. But until you're on the floor and they're trying to, to service your guests, then it doesn't really hit home. And so I think that's another aspect of my career journey is understanding the servant leadership aspect of it and, and serving others and treating everyone as guests. There's a lot more to it, but I'll stop there. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> when you speak of your experience in hospitality, did you get like out of the accounting department and spend time within the hotel or how did yes. that really hit home? Yeah, I mean, my first stint in hotels was the public company and we were buying properties. We were just investing in the hotels. I'd go look at them occasionally, but not really get involved in operations. The second time was in the early 2000s, and we developed a hotel brand, a concept. And so we developed from scratch, and we pulled together the equity funding and debt funding, and we were building prototype properties from scratch. And so it was a very small development company, and then we organized a management company to run the property, first one property out there in Plano, Texas. And then then it grew to about four or five properties, I guess. And so, yeah, I mean, when we opened that property, everybody went out there to help open it. And we've got 90 or 100 rooms and we all have to pitch in and, and make sure each room is ready and all the lights work. And then we're all tasked to greeting people and being friendly to guests and making sure folks have everything. So yeah, even if you're just in the accounting group, whether on the corporate side or the property side, you're still all about guest service. Yeah, I always think it's so important for people to get out of their office and go experience like the operation side of things at least once in their career. Oh, that's critical. Absolutely. And, and now in the construction business too, yeah, that's fun. I mean, it's getting out and, and going to job sites and yeah. you know, putting on boots and getting a little muddy and, and letting those guys drive you around in the four-wheelers and the mud and because then you can see exactly what you're building. And the accounting side, the only way we can really help build buildings is making sure everybody gets paid, right? Yeah. Which is obviously that's really important. But beyond that, putting a going and seeing and seeing these giant million square facilities that we build coming up and becoming reality is key, I think. So, and the hard part is actually making time to do it. And then these days within the COVID era, making sure you can do all that safely. Yeah. So I'd like to go back to your point about networking. You're recognized as a connector, someone with a rare blend of people skills and technical expertise. So how does being a connector assist you in your role as a CFO? Well, thank you. Yeah, I think that it's key as a CFO or at any level. But for me, as an executive, it's leading and developing relationships. So that means going, I hate to use the term across the aisle because we're not really in, at odds per se, but sometimes there can be a, a tension between an accounting folks or accounting group and operations. And so I think it's critical to develop relationships. We're all on the same team. And so develop relationships with folks that are in the field and have different perspectives. And that's what I've tried to do here, especially here at Cosmo, where I'm the first non-Japanese CFO this group has had. And so my predecessors would generally be more focused on the numbers and keeping their heads down and making sure things tie down to the penny. And that's not really my perspective. I think that's sort of table stakes. There are other folks that 
are more responsible for that on a day-to-day basis. And my role really is to develop relationships and enhance relationships between everyone in the accounting group with everyone else in the company. And so we really are one team without silos. And to that point, I've worked very closely with the leaders in operations, and we have periodic meetings, periodic meeting twice a month, and sometimes meals will go out for the folks that are here in Atlanta and develop those relationships at all levels. And so with that, then it enhances the, I guess, the productivity and the efficiency of everyone involved so that because we work so much better together. Yeah. Does that make sense? It definitely does. I think it's so important these days to be able to tear down those silos. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I think maybe, I don't know, I think it's a sort of a different concept that has evolved over time. Back years and years ago, I mean, you had each department Yep. whatever they are, and, and they would not talk too much unless yeah. they had to. Not that long days, ago, really. I mean, probably yeah. 20 yeah. years ago, it was that way. That's right. So depending on the listener, that could be a really long time or that could be <laughs> like yesterday, right? True. <laughs> but our core values here is we've got five core values and starting out with safety. I mean, we are a, a construction company, but they include respect and integrity and passion. One team is a core value. So Everyone working together as one team and continuous improvement. So I think our core values embody what we're talking about, is everyone working together to make things better and ultimately to provide the highest quality product for our clients. And as you look back on your time with KBD, what have been your proudest achievements? Yeah, I think there's a lot of what we just talked about is developing the relationships between our different groups and then... Because that that had not happened, it had sort of started when I got here, but I think, and it's not just me. I mean, I'm not the one that got us to where we are today. It truly is a team effort in developing relationships. There's a person that has joined us here. He's a controller who has really, really taken that to another level. The controller here is working across all the different department lines and has really has made great strides. So I think I sort of opened the door and then others are taking the lead, which is the way it should be, right? And so so that's one thing. And then enhanced technology. We, nine years ago, I mean, it seemed like we were just a half a step away from 13 column spreadsheets. (laughs) (laughs) And literally, and then figuratively using Excel in the same way. And so since then, and, and really it's just been the last couple of years, we've been able to bring in some digital tools that are helping us a lot in financial reporting and analysis. We still have a ways to go, but we are on the right path, absolutely. And from a standpoint of dashboarding and KPIs, and again, the table stakes or historical reporting, what's really important is determining where we're going as a company. Yeah. So I think that's the direction that that I've been able to bring to bear. And then, so there's the decision, I mean, so there's technology tools. And the other thing in that regard is relates to processing accounts payable is that Nobody wants to talk about accounts payable, except that if you don't pay your subcontractors on time, then they're not going to do the work that you need them to do. And we can talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But so we've implemented a more digital process in that regard that will help our efficiency a lot. And then making sure all this is scalable. When I started, our volume was around $200 million a year in revenue, I think. This is our subsidiary. Last year, 2020, we're pushing 600 million. 
and this year, I'm sorry, last year, 2021, 600 million or so. In 2022, we're looking at about 800 million in revenues. And so some of that is inflationary. Some of that is due to increased pricing. But in large part, it's more volume of jobs. KBD happens to be in a very good market segment for these pandemic times, building warehouse distribution for internet commerce, building manufacturing. We've got one plus or two plants now that are being used to develop and produce vaccines. So some of these manufacturing and distribution are cold storage related. And then we are in the manufacturing side as well. We've migrated into some not renewable energy, but renewable products. So like cans, aluminum cans are, are a big market segment for neat for us now. And so our growth, our future looks really good. And the key then is also making sure our internal infrastructure can handle it from a scalability standpoint. So I think we're well positioned from that view. Yeah, it sounds like it. it sounds like you've accomplished quite a bit. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. It's not just me. It's not one person. It's everybody around me too. Yeah, that's a sign of a good leader. (laughs) Okay, so let's switch gears a bit. In today's environment, how is KBD dealing with the supply chain challenges? I guess you're kind of in an interesting position where you feel the pain, but also building these manufacturing facilities, I would think you can help alleviate some of it. Yeah, you would think so, except we're not building facilities to manufacture construction products. Now, you're right. I mean, what we're doing is building manufacturing facilities to make more goods that people want. So yeah. that is true. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess you're not alleviating your own pain. You're helping to <laughs> alleviate your client's pain. That's exactly right. We're helping society. Yeah, that's right. So I guess the short answer would be two things. And it gets back to relationships and to talk about how we've managed through the supply chain issues. And this time, two years ago, in the early part of 2020, and as we progressed through Q1, like everybody else, we were worried. And we had no idea what the pandemic would mean, what it would hold for the future. And so our business really slowed down initially, even though we had a large backlog coming into 2020. Backlog in our world means projects that are under contract, but not yet built. So we're, we're contracted to build something, but we haven't built it yet, or we're in the process of building and, and we've got the backlog in that case would be what's yet to be put in place. So coming into 2020, we had a strong backlog. Then our work just slowed down because even though we are in large part, most of our job sites inherently can be pretty safe from a social distancing standpoint, because when you have a three, 400 acre site, you're building one or two million square foot buildings. The, the guy on the, the grader and the, the earth moving equipment doesn't really need to be near anybody anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and in those large buildings, when you're building them out, people, men and women uh, are in there, and but they can be far apart. And our trailers generally are pretty big too, except in the Northeast and upper Midwest. Generally, we can have meetings outside, maybe not in the wintertime. But. <laughs> so overall, we were able to avoid a lot of the illness and the spread of COVID in that time frame, just because we were able to stay safe. But then as we moved into later into 2020 and on, like everyone else, we started having supply chain problems. And it would sort of roll between the various commodities that we use. Initially, it was steel, still slowed down production, and then the prices went through the roof. So that's where the relationship aspect comes in. And we were, uh, volume slowed down, but then our, our contracts started picking up. 
and our clients, existing clients plus new clients, started seeing that internet commerce was going to explode, which of course it did. And then, so we wound up with a lot of new clients, developer clients who were buying property, buying land, and then putting up buildings, spec buildings that would later sell. And so what positioned us well was having relationships with these suppliers, starting with steel and roofing and, and concrete, so that we, when we say, yeah, I mean, okay, your prices are going up and we've got a contract with a client, initially we would try to get some relief from the client, but the client would say, nope. You know, you signed your contract, you build a building for this price, and we would do it. And so we upheld and, and stuck to our word with our clients. The subcontractors would have to increase their pricing, even though they were on a contract too. But we did not want our subs to go under, our trade partners. So we would pay their increased pricing and just take the hit. So number one, relationships. Number two, the financial capacity initially to be able to absorb some of those increases and delayed timeframes. Two initial big factors, I think, is because we've been doing this for so long, we had some longstanding relationships with trade partners and then the financial capacity to take some hits on jobs where we had not planned to do so. But since then, working through 2020 into 21, and then later in 21, we've been able to negotiate with our clients to say, look, these prices and delivery times are fluctuating. We're not going to have final pricing to you until your goods are delivered. And initially, their client said, nope, not going to do it. Either take it or leave it, sign the contract or not with us. But then as the market changed and all the general contractors were saying the same thing and seeking the same relief, our clients started saying, yeah, we can see that. And so they started agreeing to much of that. So really, it's developing partnerships with our clients so that they trust us that we'll We'll be as transparent as possible and show them exactly why prices are going up and why things are being delayed. And then partnerships with our trade partners and subcontractors and suppliers to say, look, you sign a contract with us. We understand that the pricing and the delivery schedule is in flux right now, but we'll pay you on the time frame that, that we agreed to. And so that's sort of where it wound up and where we are today. And the result has been a huge level of success for us and our clients and our suppliers and trade partners. So I think it just in that case, it just boils down to two things is one, having the relationships and developing new relationships and sticking to your word. And then secondly, being fortunate enough for us to have the financial capacity yeah. to back up our words. And so that's where we are. I think that financial capacity is so important. I'm sure that's why quite a few businesses went under right as COVID hit because they just couldn't withstand that storm. That's exactly right. And we all hate that, right? I mean, that's, that's the nature of capitalism. On the one hand, on the other hand, we all, as business people, we hate for anyone to go under. So we've been very fortunate, number one, to have a strong financial capacity, starting with that this group. I mean, Cosma is a subsidiary of Cosma Group in the US, KUSA. So as I mentioned, we'll do 600 to 800 million in revenues. We're one of six construction companies in the US. And then also in the U.S., they're development, real estate development companies. So combined, the U.S. company will do about three, two to three billion a year, maybe pushing four billion now this year, 2021-22. Our group is a net lender. We've generated enough cash and don't have any debt. So any excess cash is that we have a consolidated cash management system at the KUSA level. So we'll just send excess cash to the parent company, and they pay us more interest than than we can get in the market. So. That works well, too. 
So for all the the CFOs listening, what are some strategies that they can use to help mitigate the negative results of supply chain disruption right now? Yeah, I think it's hopefully it's not too late to develop those relationships with your providers, whether they're service providers or material providers or trade partners. Develop relationships so that, that everyone understands we're in this together. And then also, I mean, it's very competitive out there right now. So And this sort of goes hand in hand with enhancing revenues, right? And how do we help bring new clients in? And how can we help to develop relationships with clients and be sort of maybe proactive, but also creative? And that's not normally our strong suit for those of us that have accounting backgrounds. But it also gets back to networking. And if you develop relationships with people outside of accounting or outside of your specific industry, then it sort of opens your mind to think about new and different ways to do things. And so I think that's where we are. I mean, the world has changed and is constantly changing. So it's up to us to say, how do we continue and how do we be successful in this new world? One is to treat everyone with respect, the people that provide you services or materials, including your employees, because these days people are coming and going at great rates. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, the, Keep the good people, hopefully, and as opposed to losing good people and keeping the ones that the B and C players. So how do you keep your people? How do you keep your suppliers and keep them as happy as you can? And then how do you enhance and, and bring in more and more clients and deeper revenues, revenue streams? That's the question. But I think the answer is leaders and CFO level type leaders, we it's incumbent upon us to try to look to the future and try to see how we can help and have open minds and be creative where we can. And we touched on this a bit, but with all of the companies that are going under, how do you determine who to partner with? And how do you evaluate your supplier risk? Right. So the first step is for us, it's with our project teams. So we'll have a new project. First of all, we've got existing relationships, but I think the question goes beyond that is, if we're going into a new area or our existing relationships are are at capacity and we need more providers, we need more material providers or subcontract providers. So we'll go into the marketplace and canvas the subcontractor market or trade partner market and develop relationships there. So it starts with our project team and they do an extensive interview process looking at these potential partners to evaluate their capacity, whether it's From a volume standpoint, really, they focus on can each new group handle the volume that we're talking about? And so for a lot of our manufacturing facilities, again, it could be a million plus square feet under roof, plus lots and lots of equipment that goes into these things and and the the utilities that have to support that equipment. So many of our trade partners have to have a lot of capacity to fulfill their obligations. And so the first step is at the project level, our teams will interview those folks and then negotiate contracts. And then it comes down to really the the rest of the pre-qualification process is financial. So we'll get historical financial statements, you know, the last year and then the whatever the interim is. We've got a, a bonding process. So I'll take a look at the financial statements. They'll start, actually the project team will take the first pass and then then I'll look at those and ask questions and look at all the normal stuff the working capital levels, what are their, I guess, their historical results and what's in place now. A lot of times folks don't, don't want to disclose that. From my perspective, I, I don't mind sending financials out at all. 
because but but we're pretty well pretty strong financially, so that's okay. <laughs> a lot of people are reticent, and so but the larger ones are not. I mean, the larger subcontractors already have all this in place, and then bonding, even for performance bonds, we have a threshold that we stick pretty strongly to, so that that our trade partners must be bonded if their contract value is over a certain amount. That in and of itself, it does not mean that they will perform. But what we found is that if for subcontractors or trade partners that are bonded, that do have a bond in place on a job, they'll pay more attention to that job because they do not want that bond to be called. And so those are sort of the basics, I guess, as we evaluate folks to partner with in the supplier markets and the trade partner markets. Yeah, I guess that's so important these days. And, and also finding reasonable suppliers that are willing to work with you. As you mentioned, it's critical these days that you're able to pass along price increases. And so, yeah. But also the flip side of that is what we found here recently too is particularly in steel and in some cases roofing, we can negotiate for multiple projects with one provider. And then for each individual project, negotiate basically accelerated payment terms, discounted payment terms. So we could have a, throwing some numbers out, a $10 million steel package in a, on a building and over two or three months, and then make sure, because normally our contracts are structured so that payments to subcontractors and trade partners are when we get paid, pay when paid. So we're not obligated to pay them until we receive payment from our client. But what we found is we can get pretty good discounts by prepaying those. Now, it puts more risk on us to make sure that our clients will pay us because if we pay millions of dollars out of pocket and something goes wrong with the client, then we could be stuck, right? But that hasn't happened. And because we also do diligence on our client base as well to make sure that there's funding in place for each project that we build, because we really are a creditor for 80, $90 million on a big plant. So also a point I'd like to make is going hand in hand with all this is being true to your word, just being honest and saying, if we commit to payment plans with our providers, then we will stick to that as long as you perform. I mean, if, as long as you perform, we'll pay you. So I think that's a key as well as just being honest and transparent, transparent as possible. Yeah, agree with that. What advice do you have for CFOs looking to drive strategic value to grow revenue and margin? And maybe if they can't grow revenue to be able to manage the margin in, in this ridiculously inflationary period. Right. Yeah, that's right. And, and margin is key, right? I mean, <laughs> gee, let's, I could talk forever about this. So in our specific market, and we've got in the construction business, we've got jobs that are underway at any given point. And for us, these jobs generally are on the outside two years long. Generally, they're closer to a year, 12 months or so long. So it's looking, for us, it's looking at a job and saying, okay, well, this is the margin that we've been able to achieve this far within this business unit and then get down into specific jobs. We recognize revenue and cost and profit based on percentage of completion. So in the last two years now, I mean, there were some jobs that took big financial hits because, as I mentioned earlier, we absorbed price increases on certain commodities. And so you could look at the past and say, all right, these are the margins in this one job or this group of jobs going from the past. Can we get better than that? Can we do better? And if so, then why? I mean, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, if we have, a again, a 
$20 million job that in total is projected at a certain percentage. I'm not going to give our margins out. I mean, it's not really a, a competitive thing. It's more that we're a little bit embarrassed that they're sort of low. But if we've achieved a low margin in this one job heretofore, but then we think it's going to be higher going forward, how does that make sense? Then from the, and you bring that up from job to job, then consolidated. And then you say to me, I mean, as a, for CFOs out there, how can we enhance margins? And so then I think it's helping the project team look at, are they using their people as efficiently as they can? And can we help in that regard, projecting out and, and using people in different jobs? Or as on the front end, as we're looking at bidding new jobs or new projects, or if somebody is in a, the acquisition mode of looking at buying companies, are we including enough contingency in these bids? I mean, so if we're chasing something and we think we can make a certain percentage and then dive deep and ask questions about, well, what happens if something goes wrong? What happens if the commodities pricing is escalated beyond what we can get from the client? How is that accounted for in this bid? And to some cases, we may look and say, you know, there's too much risk here. Maybe we don't need to take this job or maybe we bid it at a higher price. And if we lose it, we lose it. But if not, at least we will know if we do lose it, at least we will know that we didn't take undue risk. So I think it's looking at taking into account both historical performance and why margins either were enhanced or faded, depleted, and looking to the future to see how does the history compare and, and relate to what we think is going to happen in the future. And then secondly, looking at new opportunities that we're chasing, are we being really realistic as much as possible about what we think is going to happen? And that's where financial people and beyond accounting is really just taking an intuitive look and putting on a different set of glasses to see, does this make sense? And ask, ask questions about, just putting on different hats, I guess, and, and thinking about things differently. Yeah, that question, does this make sense, is so important. And the other side, I guess, and too, is I keep getting back to networking because I think we're all in sales, especially as you move into higher levels of a company and with more responsibility. We are all in sales, even though my direct responsibility is over the finance group. But we're out there talking to people or joining different associations, whether industry groups or functional groups. I mean, we should all be trying to figure out how we can enhance the our company's perspective and bring new clients in. Or if we're running our own business, we're in sales anyway, right? We're trying to sell product and services. And so I think that could be a sort of a different perspective for some CFOs that have not had the opportunity to get out there and try to enhance their sales and revenues. Yeah, that's great advice. Lastly, as a CFO, what is keeping you up at night right now? <laughs> um, <laughs> what is it I don't know? <laughs> so, and I'm not sure. I mean, all the typical answers are inflation and getting back to the supply chain. But beyond that, I think what bothers me the most is the unknown related to this pandemic and COVID. Yeah and how pervasive it seems to be and how it continues to change. And then a lot of that relates to how some folks just don't take it seriously. And whether it's in some of our families and our companies, people we know, people we see, that's just not being taken seriously. And that, that keeps me up at night as to the long-term, short-term and long-term impact of the pandemic and COVID. And both from, I mean, everybody either, how do I say this? We've all known people that have had it if we haven't had it ourselves. And hopefully they're 
we haven't known people that have had serious problems with the pandemic and COVID, but in all likelihood, we all know people that have suffered a lot. And so that keeps me up at night is how do we end this thing so we can get back to something that's closer to normal and not make this the new normal? Don't make an ongoing pandemic the normal. Amen. (laughs) I'm (laughs) right there with you. Bona, thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh, Megan, thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, I really enjoyed getting to learn a bit about you and KBD and hearing your advice for managing supply chain disruptions. Something that I wish was going away, but doesn't seem to be any time soon. Right. And yeah, that's right. So all we can do is manage as well we can and lead as well as we can. All of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please join me again next week for another episode. And until then, take care of yourselves. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personiv.com. Thanks for listening.